And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, this is Dave Devil with another episode of Deep Down Things. I'm here today with my co-host, Liz Kelly, award-winning writer, jazz musician, and most importantly, managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm the senior editor. Liz, welcome. Thank you very much. All right, and today we have a guest all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Paul Tresco is a teacher at Vancouver College, a Catholic high school in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And he is very importantly the author of an article in our new issue, the winter 2021 uh, issue of Logos called You Aren't You, Are You? Transhumanism, the Person, and the Resurrection in Black Mirrors Be Right Back. Welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Glad to be here with you. We're glad to have you. Could you say a little bit about your background? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, as you said, I'm, I'm now uh, teaching high school at a Catholic high school here in Vancouver, where I teach uh, religious studies and, and humanities generally. I did my initial studies here in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia, where I did English literature and classics. And then just last year, I was doing my, my master's at the University of St. Andrews in a program there they have as part of their Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts. Um, and that, that program was actually what this uh, paper that we'll be talking about today initially came out of, this uh, discussion of theology and arts together. Yes, that St. Andrews program is a fascinating one. One of our other authors, Katie Ware, who's written on Dorothy Sayers, is uh, has a PhD from that program. I haven't heard of her, but I, I did, had heard that quite a few people from from ITIA, from Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts, had uh, had submitted to you guys in the past. So it's a yeah. great connection to have. Well, we're glad to have them. Well, let's talk about this article. You you aren't you, are you? Can you say a little bit about uh, the basis of this? This show, Black Mirror, maybe say a little bit about that and about the particular episode that you're writing about. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, first off, I'll apologize for the confusing title of You Aren't You, Are You? <laughs> it's a uh, perfect title. Don't ever apologize yeah. <laughs> for that title. <laughs> no, it's just hard to say. That's the only thing. Keep it, going. It is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a line of dialogue taken from the show itself, as you'll, as you'll see if you read the paper or uh, watch the show. But uh, Black Mirror, for anybody who doesn't know, is a sci-fi uh, dystopian show put out by the, the BBC. What's really interesting about it is that it's dystopian, but in the sense that it's, it's much more near future than we tend to think about in terms of kind of that dystopian uh, genre. So mm. it's stuff that could be happening in five or 10 years from now, as opposed to 150 years from now, and kind of analyzing that type of technology, how it might affect our humanity, usually giving a pretty bleak assessment of, of how technology is going to affect humanity in, in that kind of near future realm. This episode, uh, Be Right Back, uh, is one in which there's a, a couple 
Martha and Ash, and Ash tragically passes away at the beginning of the episode, but Martha ends up bringing him back through a form of what some people have called digital resurrection. So he initially, uh, there's a chat bot that will take in all of his online information and, and simulate his personality, and she'll just talk talk to him in a chat bot, and then she upgrades to the next level of the program, and she can speak with him on the phone with something that simulates his voice. And then finally, the, the kind of final level of it is that she gets a kind of individuated body that through some kind of technology looks at all the, the pictures of Ash and, and simulates him so that she's now kind of got a real-life simulation of, of Ash to live with. And in keeping with Black Mirror's typical assessment of, of technology, it all goes horribly wrong, of course, and it's, <laughs> it's very tragic. I'm just curious, did the characters do this together before Ash dies? Did they have a conversation about how, okay, if something happens to you or something happens to me, or do you just join the story after he's passed away and they've, she's decided to pursue this route? Yeah, no, it's, it's very much kind of a slippery slope story. So you mm. meet the two characters for maybe the first 10 minutes of the episode. But I guess one thing I should say is that Black Mirror is all just individual episodes. They don't kind of connect into another uh, in, a, mm-hmm. in an individual way. So this is just its own little mini enclosed story. But you meet Martha and Ash at the beginning of the episode. And then Ash dies quite quickly and Martha is bereaved and grieving. And at first she doesn't want to do this. It's suggested to her by a friend, but she kind of resists it. And then it's, again, the slippery slope idea. So the friend sends an email and she, with the information on how to do it, Martha says at first, oh, okay, I'll just try the chat bot. I'll just see what it's like. Maybe it'll help for a little while. But when she does that, she can't help but go on to getting the voice and then can't help but go on. Uh, to getting the body. So they don't discuss it together. And at first, Martha doesn't even want to do it. Uh, okay. It's interesting. It's kind of a, it's a very familiar marketing platform. They give you a little taste of something <laughs> yeah, and then you want to do the next thing and the next thing. Absolutely. You constantly have to be updating your technology yeah, day uh, to get the latest new thing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I I noticed right away just in the paper that she was from the top very um, uh, not very, but resistant and somewhat negative and sort of always looking for the ways that Ash wasn't Ash. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't ever a moment when she seemed fully convinced that it was going to work. So she was kind mm-hmm. of coming at it with a, a certain kind of skepticism. Um, and I think that's really interesting in the story versus someone so lost in mourning that they'll do anything to make it work, you know? Yeah. Like in other dystopic stories, there are, uh, I'm thinking of um, AI or something like that, where someone was just in such deep mourning that they would overlook all the ways it wasn't working just to have this pseudo experience and I love that his name is Pseudo Ash. That's just oh. so terrible. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, that that wasn't in the episode. It was just as I was writing the paper, I needed a way to differentiate it, you know, because yeah. I was talking about Ash, but then I had to say, you know, not the real Ash. It's like Pseudo Dionysus, you know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's true. That's great. Not as a positive a connotation. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. you use this. Uh, I mean, it's wonderful because you use this great story to introduce us 
to a couple of different ways of thinking about what the human person is. And mm. one of them you say comes from, and this is kind of what many of us are used to, even if we don't profess it directly, it's kind of what we've been given, uh, comes from maybe John Locke's thought, and you call it the punctual self, uh, a term. Mm. And then you say that there's a different way of thinking. Could you talk a little bit about the punctual self, and then you can talk about maybe uh, you contrast this with particularly with kind of personalist notion, uh, personalism mm -hmm. in the school of Jacques Maritain, uh, the French Catholic 20th century philosopher. Maybe if you could say a bit about those two worldviews or those two views of the human person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I should start by saying that the, the punctual self is a, is a description given to, to Locke's thinking in particular by uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor. Um, so I was really uh, another that, Canadian, that another Canadian. Yeah, yes. we got to get some Canadian representation in that episode. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Taylor really specializes in kind of, as you say, uh, telling us about not what we consciously think, but what that we maybe inherited as kind of our unconscious biases or what he would call our social imaginary things that we don't even know we believe. And one of these, as you say, would come from John Locke, and he calls it the punctual self. Punctual in that sense, not meaning being on time, but punctual as in a point, um, the geometrical term, just a, a point on which we could attach anything. So the idea behind the punctual self is that we are merely just a bit of fixed consciousness, and we can attach any qualities that we like to onto ourselves. So the, the self becomes merely just something that can be worked on, that can be improved upon. Um, as opposed to something that's given, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So it locates the self um, merely within that point of fixed consciousness. Maritain, on the other hand, is, as you say, drawing on this uh, really rich stream of, of personalism. So a stream of philosophy that starts to think about uh, what does it mean, perhaps, to think about persons as opposed to individuals. And, of course, that... I, the very word persons gets its significance, as Hansers van Balthasar says, it gets its significance from the theological term of persons, the persons of the Trinity. So connecting the human persons to the persons of the Trinity. And for Maritain, the word person just contains a lot more metaphysical richness. So he says that beneath all of the, the qualities that we have lies what he calls kind of a metaphysical center of who we are as persons that are always distinct. So we, we have this deep metaphysical center, and we also have wholeness. He, he uses that word wholeness to indicate that we, we exist ultimately for communion with God, in a sense. We've been, been built in such a way that no created thing can be our final destiny. Our final destiny can, can only be in communion with God. Yeah. So those were the two contrasting anthropologies, you could say, so kind of theories about what it means to be human. Um, the two contrasting anthropologies that I, I tried to use to analyze a bit of what was going on in here. And really, my argument was that the, the episode showed that the punctual self is an, is an uh, insufficient way to understand people. It's an insufficient understanding of the self, and that what we're really looking for is a deeper mode of communion between persons, uh, between those who have this, this metaphysical center and those who are ordained to God, 
And in the episode, I, I argue that the reason that Martha ultimately rejects pseudo Ash is because he is not a person. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of the epitome of this punctual self. He's just this strange bit of automated consciousness that arbitrarily fixes uh, qualities that resemble ashes onto himself. And that doesn't actually kind of pass the test of the lover. She, she ultimately rejects that because what she wants is the person of Ash. Well, it's interesting, too, because all of this, uh, the arguments that you're using also help to situate grief and the, mm-hmm. the, the purpose of grief or how grief informs us of that transcendent desire for perfect mm-hmm. communion. And, and in pseudo-Ash just trying to eradicate that grief, <laughs> he can't do it for a whole host mm-hmm. of reasons, but I think it's interesting. What I kept coming back to was, you know, Martha's grief needed to be satisfied because she was a person, and that that grief somehow also then reflects on and leads into uh, the rest of the paper where you're talking about setting that next to the notion of Christian resurrection and what that means then for the human person. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think on that note, it's, uh, as I mentioned briefly in the paper, I think it's not insignificant that she's named Martha. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, the mm-hmm. great, one of the great grievers from the Gospels, right? So Martha, whose brother Lazarus dies and comes to Christ in grief alongside her sister Mary, and to whom Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So she kind of models, I suppose, what we could maybe say is a, is a healthy grief that Martha of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think maybe Martha in this episode ultimately lands in that place too. You know, she ultimately recognizes the insufficiency of, of pseudo-ash, um, but it takes her a longer time to get there. And, and she's not helped in getting there by the technology that is kind of almost forced upon her, um, or at least is there as a temptation for her. You know, one of the uh, one of the interesting points in your paper that I think is in, worth bringing out is that what she misses is not necessarily the perfections of Ash, but it's it's the the real things. I mean, you note that one of the things that she, that Martha sees in pseudo Ash, or rather feels, is his fingertips are too smooth, or you know, mm-hmm. he. I think she said she says at one point that well, you're you're Ash on a good day but not ash on a bad day. And it, it, there, that sort of quest that we have for this perfection uh, is ultimately not, not sufficient for, for real love, it seems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, d- I didn't mention it in the paper, but the one, the one kind of moment where it seems like maybe things could work out with pseudo-ash is at the very beginning where she, the first night that she kind of resurrects him, so to speak, she gets herself um, drunk, I think, because she's so so overwhelmed by the experience but speaking of his perfection they you you see that in the scene where they they make love um mm. and he she says you know where did you learn how to to do this because he's obviously um you know acts like an experienced lover one could say and he's he says you know from watching all of these online pornography videos that he's got oh, access yeah. to Lord. um so he's this kind of like you know the the ultimate sex machine one could say right um but then we realize really quickly that that is totally insufficient and he later on like the next night i think 
tries to, in this moment where she's kind of realizing this isn't working, she, he tries to initiate sex with her again and she rejects it because she's at that point saying, no, you're not acting the way you're supposed to. Ash would have flaws. Ash would be pushing back against me rather than just going along with everything that I say, like some kind of perfect automated being would. So I, I think you're definitely right. You do see the, the, the flaws of the, the lover end up being really essential and end up being more what we desire than Mm-hmm. kind of automated mm-hmm. perfection. Mm-hmm. That's not even the that's not even five years ahead of time. I mean, you're already seeing these stories about, you know, sex robots and bro, you know, sex robot brothels, and people mm-hmm. are trying to get this sort of uh, personal contact through something that's in, inherently impersonal, uh, mm-hmm. that that is a, a simulacrum of 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 reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know that's what's frightening about this in certain ways. Absolutely. I mean, but what I find so interesting about about Black Mirror generally is that it's so pessimistic about those conclusions. Like, mm-hmm. as far as I, as far as I know, there's you know not. I don't believe that it's done by people of faith or anything like that. But right. but it's interesting that it holds up these ideas like you know a perfect sex robot and very quickly just says, oh, that's totally inadequate. And I, I find it interesting that they they, at least in most of their episodes, aren't really entertaining the idea that these technologies could actually fulfill us in the way that they suggest that they they might. If they're not lighting candles, they're at least cursing the darkness, which I think is probably a good thing, right? Absolutely. That's very, very well said. Not lighting candles, but at least cursing the darkness. Most people hear the word apocalyptic and think only of of end-of-the-world disasters. But apocalypse is simply the Greek word for revelation or unveiling. Join Deep Down Things podcast host Dr. David Dievel and the St. Thomas Catholic Studies graduate program for the live Zoom presentation and panel discussion, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine, on Thursday, April 29, 2021, at 7 p.m., Explore how Catholic apocalyptic novels teach us to view and to have peace amid the good, the bad, and the ugly of the end times. Register for free at link.stthomas.edu backslash CSMA. Again, that's L-I-N-K dot S-T Thomas dot E-D-U backslash C as in cat, S as in Sam, M-A. There's a certain hopefulness about this. I mean, you say Martha may have come at the end of this episode to maybe a desire for something more. And, and part of your article is about tracing out the differences between real resurrection in, in, the, in the Christian sense mm-hmm. and this, and this uh, you know, basically ersatz resurrection of, of the transhumanist technological fantasy. What what is the difference between real resurrection and, and this? Yeah, well, I guess I'll, uh, it's okay. I'll just share a brief quote from Hansers Van Balthazar that I used to, to begin the article that I think will help me answer that question a little bit. And Balthazar here is, is talking about eros, so love, erotic love, longing, romantic love. And he, he says, eros contains a promise which is always pointing beyond the sentiments that size abide a while thou art so beautiful, and which therefore, if it is not transposed onto the Christian level, 
must condemn itself to eternal melancholy and self-consumption. This total structure of beauty can be redeemed only if the risen lover is met at the other side of death. Yeah. So for, for Balthazar, I, I love this language he uses of, of transposing mm-hmm. um, that longing or uh, redeeming that longing. Yeah. And, and he's claiming that all of our kind of longing for resurrection, all of our longing for the beloved is either going to turn into eternal melancholy right. of only cursing the darkness ever, so to speak, saying just never going to happen, or it is going to find fulfillment and it's going to find hope in the Christian vision of resurrection. So I, what, I, what I try to do in the article is, is to first kind of situate how Ash's resurrection ends up being totally insufficient um, for Martha, but then compare that with uh, the resurrection of Christ as it's, as it's described in the Gospels, and in particular also with um, some of how St. Augustine describes it in his sermons. And the, the two mm-hmm. points on which I suggest pseudo-Ash's resurrection really fails are, one, that he doesn't have that depth of the person, that kind of metaphysical wholeness. Yeah. And two, that he, uh, yeah, sorry, that he's not whole in the sense that he doesn't exist only, he doesn't exist for himself or for God. He only exists to please Martha. Yeah. And that ends up being terrible. Right. Um, yeah. Whereas in Christ's resurrection is, is totally different in that he, when he is brought back, he brings his person, he brings his metaphysical center. Um, and that means that his, his resurrection isn't merely just about trying to recreate the qualities that he had before. He obviously goes and undergoes some kind of change. You know, his resurrection body is different from his other body. Yeah, they but, don't recognize um, him, do they? <laughs> they? They might not recognize him at first, but he's got that metaphysical person. Yeah, at the same time, his body does come back with the marks of the crucifixion. Absolutely. And it's like, we don't know exactly what that means, but I, again, I just, I keep coming back to this grief notion is that he takes uh, he takes into the resurrection and in the glorified body the marks of his suffering. And so I just keep coming back to this notion, somehow our grief is going to be glorified at some point as well. You know, we don't just leave it behind. It, 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 it changes, it's transformed, it's redeemed, uh, just in the same way that even Christ's body still bears the mark of his tremendous suffering. And so there's got to be some sort of gift in it that if we try to skirt around mm-hmm. grief or suffering or whatever it is, that you know we're we're uh, putting a distance between ourselves and the wholeness of our person. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that connects really well with um, the other thing I kind of forgot to mention about personalism is that it. Uh, it always affirms the centrality of the body. So Maritain and mm-hmm. other personalist thought, Maritain goes so far as to say that a soul without a body is not a person. We, we need the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a lot of the significance of Christ resurrecting in his same body, as, as St. Augustine tries to make really clear to his parishioners in some of his sermons. It's the same body that, that comes back and, as you say, has those marks of embodied history of his um, the, the scars. Um, so, so Christ has that embodied history where pseudo ash does not, right? So the body is going to be really essential to our Christian vision of resurrection. Um, having being the same metaphysical center, that same complex of personhood that Maritain describes, I suggest is really essential to our vision of resurrection. 
And then finally, wholeness. And by wholeness, I mean the sense of being ordained to God, as as Mary Tom would say. And you see that with Christ in that, you know, he doesn't resurrect just to, you know, hang around with his disciples. And right. like, let's get back to right. how it was before. That, sure. that was great. He, he resurrects for communion with the Father, right? And that's what he says to Mary Magdalene, you know, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. He, he wants to, he, he is destined to, so to speak, to, to ascend to the Father and to allow all of these other people, um, his followers, to ascend to the Father as well for that ultimate mode of communion. So resurrection that doesn't, doesn't include that, that is merely just kind of an attempt to imitate how life was before, is, is going to, I guess, Balthazar would say, become eternal melancholy. Yeah. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I think about other uh, other forms of tales that are popular these days. Um, I mean, there's always there's always vampires, which give mm-hmm. us a sort of a promise of a life that goes on in a sort of a similar way. But there's the, the obvious image of you know it's it's a life that is draining life away from other people. Mm-hmm. We have zombies, uh, which are a kind of it's a similar thing. Are, are there other are there other uh, stories out there in our sort of sci-fi and fantasy world that that play into this de- this desire that's in some ways disordered but nevertheless has a kernel of truth for for life to go on one thing i was thinking about with that is that you know the zombies are known as the undead right mm-hmm. right um, yeah. but we but they're not the living right we <laughs> yeah. all have this this instinctual sense of okay they're not dead but we know that's not what life is mm-hmm. and so i think that what Part of what zombies do, I mean, who could say all of what zombies do, but part of what zombies do perhaps is they allow us to, to think, okay, what, what would eternal life that's desirable really be like? Because it obviously wouldn't be like that. And that makes me think of some, of some other Black Mirror episodes play on a similar theme in that they kind of, again, have this kind of dystopian wondering about what it could be like to be a consciousness that had been removed from its body and was fixed into an object that was now alive eternally. And that ends up being torture, right? Yeah. People are, are stuck in some of, sometimes they're in made up worlds, depending on the episode, they'll kind of get imprisoned in a small world eternally. Or I think there's an episode where somebody gets imprisoned in a teddy bear. So those, those kinds of things and zombies as well point out to us that what we're not looking for is eternal continuity. We don't just want to exist in some form as consciousness eternally. What we want is eternal life. And so it, yeah. it asks us, what is life? What is goodness? What is that kind of flourishing that we're hoping for? Right. And interesting that, you know, Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, this is eternal life that they know you, the father and Jesus Christ, yeah. whom you have sent. So, so our knowledge of God and our communion of God, becomes the new standard and metric of measuring what is life. And we pass from death into life. So, yeah, I think that those, those forms of, of science fiction and, and other genres allow us to, to really consider what is life, what does fulfillment uh, for the person really look like, and what are we hoping for if, we're, if we are hoping for anything. Yeah, the merely human is is ultimately a terrifying and, and destructive thing. But uh, the human that is transformed 
by the divine, that that's what we're longing for in love, because it gives us not only God, but then all these things added unto us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. Well, you have a note of hopefulness again about about Martha, and and a, a kind of a, a note of hopefulness about those people who are sort of seeking these things out, and maybe they're helped along in terms of understanding mm-hmm. that this is a false path. Does does uh, does this suggest to you any particular ways, artistic or cultural, in which we can talk about the resurrection uh, in in a new way, but say the same mm-hmm. thing, such that people can kind of hear that maybe this is preference uh, preferential to pseudo ash? Yeah, I, I I love that question. Um, it's difficult. I uh, yeah, I did I did end on that on that note of hopefulness, wondering if perhaps from this site of disappointment, a new hope would rise. And as I said a little bit earlier, that's part of why I find um, Black Mirror's generally pessimistic take on the transhumanist project so interesting. And what's intriguing about the transhumanist project of, of trying to create life through technology is that it has similarities and differences to the Christian vision. It's not like they're completely opposed. They do have the similarity of both trying to imagine what it could be like for humans to live on and to live on in a, in a different existence. So both Christianity and transhumanism are trying to imagine what that could be like, but they're going mm-hmm. about it through vastly different means. And so but we could take Black Mirror's pessimistic take on on the transhumanist project to say, okay, we should just stop all of that. You know, (laughs) let's not try to hope for anything more. We just have to resign ourselves to the way things are. And that's it. Or we could take it to be saying, you know, those, those longings are good. You know, that longing for something beyond is good, but we're going about it the wrong way here. Yeah. I think it's really important to emphasize that, that, the longing each is trying to address is a great good, and we've been created with it with purpose. It's not just to, uh, it's not just to uh, uh, dandle something in front of us that we can never have. <laughs> that we're actually exactly. ordered toward that. And there are plenty of disordered ways that we can try to go about fulfilling that. And um, transhumanism is just one variant. I loved how you put together just this whole notion of transhumanism with some of the ancient thought of the church. You pulling out Augustine and pulling out Maritain. Well, he's not ancient, but you know what I mean. Uh, was a really nice juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, as you say, that that sense of of honoring something in that longing um, is is really key, and for and for Christianity to engage. With, I mean, in that sense, transhumanism opens such an interesting door for some of these conversations, right? Because it's saying, you know, you want some kind of better life. You want some kind of redemption. You're acknowledging that this world isn't right as it is, but let's look at a different way of doing that. But in terms of the second part of your question of what, what might art that takes on this topic look like, um, that's a, a really difficult one because I think in some ways, I can't remember the phrasing you used just earlier, but it's much easier to you say curse the dark instead of you yeah. know, bring the light. It's much easier to to say in a way you know this isn't going to work, as opposed to depicting positively 
what could the fulfillment of this hope be like? And the main thing that I thought of in terms of how that could be depicted artistically would be coming back to um, J.R.R. Tolkien's concept of the eucatastrophe yeah. um, and bringing that in. So Tolkien's idea that that great stories bring us to a moment of kind of despair of, of thinking that there's this great universal defeat, but then all of a sudden that despair is, is transfigured into new hope. And I think that stories that manage to do that to, to first, perhaps we could say curse the darkness, arrive at that moment of despair of saying, mm -hmm. I know everything we're doing isn't working. It looks like it's futility, but then compellingly, depicts that moment of, of you catastrophe, that moment of uh, deliverance stories that managed to do that. I think perhaps awaken some of that longing in a more positive sense. Uh, the, I mean, the stories that I think of personally, when I would kind of imagine that, are of course, Tolkien's work itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, Lewis's the last battle, I feel like does that really well, but a, a more contemporary example that I've also written a little bit about for a different project is uh, Avengers Endgame. Uh, yeah. the, the latest Avengers film has, I mean, just a textbook moment of you catastrophe right at the end of, where, you know, it looks like the, everything they've tried hasn't worked and Thanos is back. And then, you know, all of a sudden the heroes who had died are, are resurrected in this moment of kind of general resurrection on a post-apocalyptic battlefield. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. almost right out of the book of Revelation. And with this pure joy, everybody comes and assembles together and the forces of evil are defeated. Mm. Um, so that, that would be maybe a more contemporary example from the, the pop culture yeah. vein of something that feeds that longing. Well, it, yeah, it gets, the it gets the positive element to it. I mean, even it's not, co it's not complete because, I mean, Iron Man dies. At the end of this, yeah. for good, but yeah. but uh, but you know, but that but that's probably good because it doesn't claim too much for uh, <laughs> what you yeah. can what you can do yeah. with Infinity Stones, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's the same kind of with Lord of the Rings, right? It's just this fleeting moment of, right. of you you catastrophe, and then they have to go home to the Shire, and things are dark and bleak, and Frodo can't return to his life there in the same way. So, as you say, I think great art you know, is only ever going to be able to do this in kind of hints and guesses. Sure. And right. if it does try to claim too much, it, it, it is probably going to bite off, bite off more than it can chew, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of uh, T.S. Eliot's line, and I think it was in The Sacred Wood, where he's talking about, uh, you know, Dante was so, able to do so much more with uh, the Inferno than the Paradiso, at least if, to attract us, mm. because we know so much more of hell than we do of heaven. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. And maybe that's just maybe that's just part of it. But looking for those hints is is uh, is a great way of doing things. I think that's probably a great mm. note to end on. Um, you know, mm. before we go though, I'd like to ask you. We'll be putting some things in our show notes. Are there other sources? Uh, some of the things on the Punctual Self and on the Transhumanist mm. Project and particularly the resources you used uh, from Jacques Maritain uh, that you think mm -hmm. would be useful for people thinking about these topics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in terms of the punctual self, uh, that's part of Charles Taylor's larger work, and I probably just couldn't recommend enough just reading any Charles Taylor that you can. Um, <laughs> yeah. for, for those 
uh, who would be a little bit daunted by his big works. He's his two really big works are Sources of the Self and A Secular Age. Um, a couple of places you could start. Uh, he has a, a small book called The Ethics of Authenticity hmm. uh, that is a, is a really nice place to start and summarizes a lot of Sources of the Self in a really helpful way. Uh, there's also a reader of a secular age done by James K. A. Smith called How Not to Be Secular. Oh yeah, that can introduce you to a lot of his uh, thought. There's actually also I'm just remembering it now. There's a book about Charles Taylor and zombies. I should have mentioned it before, <laughs> uh, but by uh, Alyssa Wilkinson and Robert uh, Hustra, I think is how you say his name, called How to Survive the Apocalypse. Yeah, your guide to zombies, Cylons, and the end of the world, or something. That's also about Charles Taylor. I think that's your next article, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Zombies and Charles Taylor. And then for Maritime, most of what I took for the purposes of the paper was from his essay called The Person and the Common Good. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of a heavy read, but I would say really, really worthwhile. If, if you're looking for, I think that what personalism does that's so refreshing is that it kind of at least partially overcomes the barrier or the division between the individual and society that, you know, that dichotomy I think has really haunted us for a long time. And personalism manages to overcome that dichotomy in a really fruitful way. And and Maritime manages to do that. And then for transhumanism, uh, I can't, I can't think too much what would be a great take on it. I mean, I would say watch Black Mirror. Although be careful. There we go. Episodes are pretty, pretty uh graphic sometimes mm, and mm. uh can be pretty bleak i i can't say i've watched every episode of black mirror because i sometimes it really can just be a little bit too much so be be mindful of what uh what episodes you're choosing perhaps all right well thank you so much paul this has been a delight yeah thanks so much for having me on i really appreciate the opportunity to have a bit of a conversation all right and thank you liz Uh, this is dave devil and liz kelly on the podcast deep down thanks thank you for joining us for another great episode deep down things is a partnership between logos journal and the friends of saint thomas catholic studies and we hope that you'll visit our website patreon.com backslash deep down things that's patreon.com backslash deep down things one word to become a patron of the show, to see the show notes, and to continue the conversation. Thank you.